Father, it is good to be in the house of the Lord with your people. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And so it is, Father, and we praise you. We give you thanks because you have done what you have done in this church. You have made us what we are, and you continue to work in us, to change us. And all of this is grounded in your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us a more mature church, a more unified church, a stronger church, a more stable church, as we learn the truth of your word and bring it to bear on our thinking and on our feelings and on our actions so that our lives would be like lights in this world as people look and see the light of the glory of God and how we speak and how we live. Help us, Father, now to understand your word, change us by it, support us in it, and put a ballast in our ship that will keep us from overturning And, O Father, may Jesus be glorified in it all, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On October 10th, 2018, Hurricane Michael, you'll remember, slammed into the Florida panhandle as a Category 4 storm. It was a massive thing. Its sustained maximum wind came upon shore at 155 miles per hour. The storm caused catastrophic damage from wind and storm surge, especially in the Panama City Beach and Mexico Beach areas. Video, as you remember, of that major storm from the networks the next morning revealed a level of devastation that is seldom seen after a hurricane. Mexico Beach in particular was absolutely flattened Homes and businesses were literally thrown into the canal. Nothing was spared, nothing, except one beautiful white house that remained on the beachhead, surrounded by utter devastation, but appeared as if it were practically untouched by this massive storm. The fact is, however, that Just like all the other structures around it, this house, too, was hit with the full force of Hurricane Michael, which packed wind gusts up to and beyond 200 miles an hour. And yet there it stood. And today there it stands. The locals now commonly refer to it as the Sand Palace. How did this one beautiful white home survive the onslaught of a Category 4 storm when all of the others were destroyed? It was interesting as I viewed this recently and and even back then right after the storm, there was another house that was still standing. It was the one directly behind the white house as it was protected mostly by the wind. Even that was damaged perhaps beyond repair. Was it a miracle that it was left standing? No. Uh, Was it a fluke of nature? No. When questioned about it, the owner of the house, LeBron Lackey, if you haven't seen the interview with him, it's worth seeing. He wasn't boasting about his house. He was holding back the tears on behalf of his neighbors who lost everything. 
But when they asked him about it, he explained that he had very carefully and intentionally designed and built this house to withstand, as he called it, the big one, the biggest, baddest storm that he could imagine. Instead of constructing the walls out of wood, he used reinforced concrete. Instead of sinking the foundation pilings 20 feet below ground, which was typical, he sent them 40 feet down. Everything was reinforced with steel cable, and, and the few windows that the house possessed was rated to withstand impacts of flying debris up to and over 200 miles an hour. Today, it stands on Mexico Beach as a thing of beauty and a marvel of engineering. It also stands as a modern parable of the kind of, the kind of Christians God wants to construct in this world, those that are not easily blown away. You remember Jesus' parable about what kind of man is a fool who builds his house on the sand? And what kind of man is wise who builds his house on a firm foundation? Well, what is true about the Christian life is also true about churches. What kind of church does God want built? This is the kind of churches. This house is kind of a parable of the kind of churches that God builds and that the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to build in Ephesus. For the past several weeks, we've considered how, how to build a life that remains upright, even in the stormiest seas. Today, I want to talk to you about what it takes to build a church that faithfully endures, regardless of the wind and the waves and the sea surge that comes, the storm surge that comes upon it, through false teaching, through spiritual attack, through internal squabbles? How do you build a church that after the storm finds itself still standing, still beautiful, still functional, and a marvel to those who see it? Well, let's begin this morning by doing what we always do at this point in the message. Let's stand together and read our text. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Very famous Words we're about to read, you, you all know these things, but I was refreshed in studying it this week, and I trust you will be as well. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19, listen to what the Spirit says to his church. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. As you know, at this point in Paul's life, he's in jail. He's awaiting the verdict, which he is confident this time is not going to be 
one that frees him, but one that executes him. And so, in his final days, he writes this letter to his protege, Timothy, because he wants him to be equipped to be faithful in ministry after the Apostle Paul is done. He offers instruction to Timothy about his, his own life and ministry of the gospel. He wants to give him instruction about what it means to be a leader in the local church, a, a leader that pleases the Lord. Now, however, Paul kind of shifts his thinking at this, on this question of how to build a strong, upright Christian who is not easily toppled to a very corresponding topic of how to build churches that endure. How do you build a church that endures? Now, obviously, a lot could be said about this. We could spend weeks talking about this and that and another, things to look out for, things to do, things to not do. But I'm going to resist the urge to do any of that but rather just stick with the confines of this text. There's more that the Bible says, but there's enough here, I think, to encourage us in where we are and to motivate us where we need to go. So how does a faithful pastor, how does a faithful elder team in a local church build a church that endures? This is relevant for us on the one hand because we have this mother church here, Calvary Bible Church, and it is our hope as we have planted one other church, we hope to plant another church not too far distant down the road, that church will want to be a stable, enduring church. And so let's consider these things. If you're going to build a stable church, here's, here's what the pastors need to do. Number one, they need to confront the spiritual troublemakers. Now, that's not where you and I would probably start a book on this topic. We'd say something positive. That's not what Paul says. Deal with the troublemakers. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Now, I understand that today's religious culture seems to have pastors feeling as if their primary goal to their congregations is to motivate and to encourage. And I have no problem with those two motivations, I I too hope that you leave week after week with a greater zeal for the Lord and a deeper joy, not in yourself, but in Jesus, that his joy will become your joy and in a way that refreshes you one week after another. But that's not the faithful pastor's only priority. We also have to say things to people that they're not sure they want to hear. In fact, after they hear it, they're They're very sure they didn't want to hear it. And this is what Paul's instructing Timothy to do. He says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. In other words, this is something that should be happening on a regular basis. We're not not offering new truth as if there were any, but rather we are reminders. We're delivering the same message again and again and again. Remind them of these things. Well, well, what things? Well, he's referring to verses 11 through, through 13, to be sure, where the message of the ancient hymn that we talked about last time is both a word of encouragement and a, warning, a, a, a word of grave warning. It's a dire warning. 
And then Paul says, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So looking back, that dire warning and that great encouragement, keep reminding them. Keep reminding them. This is a present active imperative. Remind them and keep reminding them. And the corresponding verb here is charge. So you're reminding them and charging them. Charge here means to testify, to warn. The NAS adds the word solemnly, solemnly charge. And I think that picks up the sense of this. There is an urgency about this. There is a seriousness about this. There is a sense of sobriety to this. Warn them, solemnly charge them before God. And notice that, before God. Charge them before God. Paul wants Timothy to bring this strong warning down upon certain men in the church who were proving themselves to be spiritual troublemakers. And he, want, he, he wants them to do it knowing that God would be standing with them when he does. It kind of reminds you of Matthew 18, doesn't it? This is how you... You address a person in the church who has drifted into sin. First, you go speak to him privately. If he doesn't respond to your repeated private conversations, then you're going to have to bring other people involved. And if they didn't, don't listen to those people who witnessed what's happening or witnessed what happened, maybe both, then you tell it to the church. And if they won't listen even to the church, then, then put them out of the church. Treat them like a tax collector, an unbeliever. And then Matthew 18 goes on, and Jesus is, is teaching his men these things. And it's that famous passage where he says, remember, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Listen, he's not talking about prayer meeting. He's talking about discipline. It's as if Paul is saying, I mean, as if Jesus was saying, I know this is going to be hard. It's going to be hard for you to say the things and do the things that I'm requiring you to do when someone is fallen into sin, has, has thrown themselves into sin, and they need to be dealt with properly, biblically. I know it's going to be hard, but know this. When you obey me, I am with you. When you're addressing issues in the church the way I've called you to address them, I am with you. After all, this is the church for which his only begotten son willingly died. He won't leave us out there to figure it out on our own. He won't leave us there without the wisdom and the power to do what God has called us to do. And it's the same thing here with these troublemakers in the church. Why did they need to be confronted? Well, because they were arguing about words. They were engaging in word wars. And what were they arguing about? Who knows? And did it have something to do with ancient Gnosticism? Who cares? <laughs> um, really, I was going to do a study on Gnosticism to kind of bring that into this, and, and we don't need to know about that. Listen, the warning, it, it really doesn't matter what the issues are. It doesn't matter what the point of contention is. The, the thing is, it's a point of contention. It, it, it's a... It's not just talking about a difference of opinion. It's not just dealing with, you know, we address words all the time. We have favorite words. We have words that we defend, like justification, like adoption, 
like regeneration. These are important words to us. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about being discerning. He's not talking about uh, standing on the truth of God, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. He's talking about people who want to argue about every little thing. Every little opinion becomes for them a conviction. And they're unyielding and willing to cause trouble in the church over things that don't matter, on words that don't matter, on philosophical arguments that don't matter. The point is, these were men in the church who were apparently lost their sense of awe and wonder of the gospel. And the simplicity and purity of Christ and and now they descended into useless arguments about things that don't matter. I remember when I was going to seminary, I enjoyed seminary. I can't say I loved seminary, but I enjoyed seminary. Uh, other parts of my theological education were just massively enjoyable. But when I was in seminary, I remember uh, one of my unfond memories of seminary was going to the student center because there were always guys in there who were like this. And they picked up on something along the way, some minuscule thing, probably from a language that's, you know, that nobody, nobody really understood where it came from or where it was going. And they would argue about it. My fellow seminarians would argue, sometimes to the point of anger with one another. And I remember there, on a several occasions, thinking, wow, is this what, is this what ministry is about? I mean, if this, is this what's expected of me? That we will argue about things that don't matter? At the end of the day, have nothing to do with sanctification? At the end of the day, have nothing to do with anyone's salvation? Never, not defending the gospel? It seemed to me that the reason that they cared so much about it was simply because they, they loved to spar with one another. They wanted to be the smartest person in the room. And I hated those discussions, really. I mean, there were days when it just totally discouraged me. And frankly, it made me question whether all of this theology, where it was going, and, and what was all this learning going to accomplish in my life and in my future ministry. And frankly, this is precisely Paul's concern. I wasn't smart enough, really, to engage in those conversations. I just sat there in awe and disgust and thinking, I must not get something because this must be really, really, really important for them to get so angry about it. Only to learn as I grew in grace that that stuff was meaningless. It wasn't so much how these men were affecting one another in Paul's mind, so much as how it was affecting those who were listening in. Listening, overhearing your conversation, that was me overhearing the conversation. He says, their quarreling does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Not the speakers, but the hearers. Those who are listening. By the way, the word ruin here, it only ruins the hearer. The word here is catastrophe. In Greek, that's the word, catastrophe. The, the literal rendering of it is this, to turn things upside down. 
It's the same word used in 2 Peter 2.6 where the apostle Peter describes Sodom and Gomorrah who were condemned to extinction, catastrophe. And he's saying that this is what happens when you allow people in the church who carry on these foolish arguments, and, and it, might not be, it might not be just foolish arguments. It may be somebody coming into the church giving false doctrine. Uh, remember, years ago, we had a, a man who lived in the community, and he began visiting, and I, I can still see him walking through the back door wondering who this guy was, and I met him, and one day he came to the office, and uh, he knocked on the door, and I let him in, and we got talking. It turns out I mean, he'd been visiting the church for months, but he was on a mission. He was a Mormon. And he wanted to talk to everybody about it. He wanted to make his arguments about it. And you know what? There is no place for that in the church. You know, uh, John says in one of his little epistles, somebody comes and knocks on your door with that kind of stuff, don't even let them in. Don't talk to him. Don't give him a hello. Don't give him a salutation. Just close the door. Just close the door. This is what quarreling about words does to the church. It weakens the church. It disheartens God's people. And, and I really think the people who were doing this were key people in the local church. They were people of influence. It disheartens God's people and it falsely teaches young believers that theology is all about debate and Bible study is for the sake of knowledge without love. God hates that kind of useless talk in the church. Now listen very carefully to me. I'm not saying that pastors shouldn't confront false teaching. That's not what I'm saying at all. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that that's not what I'm saying. To the contrary, Paul says that we are to teach sound doctrine and what? Refute those who contradict. Yes. But Paul is speaking here about a kind of religious, philosophical imaginations that are brought into the church that are largely disconnected from the essential doctrines of the Bible. Generally speaking, this is the kind of sin that, is, that happens most among young men. The older guys, as Frank Shannon used to say, I'm too, I'm too old to care. <laughs> uh, listen, we don't have any time for that. We don't have any time for that. But young men love to spar. they got to kill their dragons, right? And, and this may be one of the reasons that, that Paul said what he said in verse 22. Look at verse 22, kind of jumping ahead here. He commands us, flee youthful lusts. He's... Nowhere in this passage is he talking about sexual lust. He's talking about the lust to be the smartest person in the room, the lust to draw disciples after yourself, to the, the lust to be right, or to undercut what you're successfully undercut what the leaders in the church are teaching. Wayne Mack used to warn us by saying, Brothers, don't shout where God whispers. So if Timothy was going to build a church in Ephesus that endures, he was going to have to dive into the fray with a fire hose and douse the, the flames of petty bickering about things that don't matter. Secondly, to build a, a church that endures. Second, second piece of counsel that Paul gives to Timothy, number two, 
labor in the ministry of the word. Don't argue about words. Focus on the ministry of the word. Labor in the ministry of the word. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The King James Version renders the first word here as study. Study. And, and I suspect study back in the 1600s had a different meaning than it does today. In reality, however, Paul uses a word that means give diligence or be zealous or engage in the hard work. If you're a pastor, especially a preaching pastor of a local church, you have a lot of work to do every week. And just to give you insight into my life on this point, fully half of my week is study. Half of my week, sometimes more than half of my week, is study. I think uh, my, my wife and children may think that's all I do. Every moment that becomes free becomes a moment when the, the pressure of being ready for Sunday comes on you, and you've got to study. You've got to study. Listen, if, if any of you young men are thinking about entering into the ministry, don't have any false ideas about how fun it's going to be. You will be entering the life of a student, and not just a student, but a proclaimer of God's truth, a teacher of God's truth. If you don't like studying, then maybe you should find something else to do. Paul said that those who engage in the war of words should be charged before God. So Timothy was to study in such a way that met the approval of God. So here's two different people or groups standing before God. Timothy is to take this group and, as it were, stand them before God and the commands of God and rebuke them. At the same time, Paul is saying, Timothy, remember your own life and your own teaching. Because while you're telling them they stand before God and will be judged by him, so you stand before God and will be judged by him. We know that from James. Don't many of you clamor to be teachers because in the end you will fall under a stricter judgment. Why? Because of the ministry of the word. It's so important that God's message get to his people. On this verse, Albert Barnes writes the following, quote, the object of the ministry is not to please men. Such doctrines should be preached and such plans formed, such manner of life pursued as God will approve. To do this demands care, for there are many temptations to be to the opposite course. There are many things, the tendency of which is to lead the minister to seek popular favor rather than the divine approval. If any man please God... It will be as a result of deliberate intention and a careful life. Deliberate and careful. 
This is the calling of pastoral ministry. It's, it's not to preach and lead in such a way that draws great crowds. It's not a call to be especially creative or cool. And you all know that I don't, <laughs> I don't reach that. I'm, if there's anything about me, a, a good adjective to use, cool is probably not one. <laughs> We're not called to be clever. It's not a call to help people feel good about themselves. It's a call to labor over the word of God so that he can deliver the message of the Almighty with clarity and with power. This is the message of the Almighty, this book. And to do that requires the mindset of, if we can flash back just a few paragraphs and re- remember all of this is part of Paul's con- remember Paul didn't read this or didn't write this to be preached I mean, this was this was not a pre- these are not a set of preaching notes it's a letter and just a few paragraphs back here's what he was saying to Timothy He wants him to labor like a soldier who doesn't get entangled with civilian affairs. He wants him to labor like an athlete who trains hard and obeys the rules because he intends to win. He wants him to work hard like a hardworking farmer who wants to share in the crops. And he says, I'm not going to explain that to you. I'm going to let you ponder that. The Lord will reveal it. This is what he's talking about. Study, work hard, be zealous in the ministry of the word. His goal is not to win approval of the people, but rather the approval of God. It should be my heartbeat every week to stand before you and say, listen, Lord, it doesn't matter so much to me what anybody else thinks about what I'm going to say. The only thing that matters to me is what you think about what I'm going to say. And may everything I say be consistent with the pages of this book. The word approve here, by by the way, dakimazo, means approved by testing. It's not approved by applause. It's approval by testing. How do, you, how do you test metal? Well, you throw it into the pot and you put a bunch of fire under it and you let it melt and the dross comes to the surface and gets, and gets scraped off. And that's the way it'll be for, the rest of, for, for a lifetime of ministry. You're always wanting to be refined. You're always wanting to be Uh, more faithful to the text of Scripture. And so the test of a faithful student of the Word is not whether people like to hear it. Just go back to the Old Testament prophets. If they were supposed to garner favor, tell that to Jeremiah. Tell that to Isaiah. Tell that to Paul. And tell it to Jesus. The test of a faithful student of the Word is his faithful preaching of the Word. And faithful preaching requires hard work. The faithful preacher is a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Contrast that with these men who are in the church who should be ashamed. I think too many people, too many preachers are guilty of having misplaced shame. They're ashamed to proclaim God's truth for fear of what people will think. And they're not ashamed of compromising on the word of God. At the end of, this, of his study, he is prepared, the preacher, to declare the point of the text as, as it was intended by the author. Listen, it doesn't matter what the text means to me. What did it mean to the person who wrote it? What did it mean to the Holy Spirit? What did it mean to God? 
This is the labor of study. You know why? One of the reasons I love expository preaching on a very, very practical level, level for me in terms of workload is because if you're going to get the point of the text right, you have to understand context, you've got to dive into historical issues, linguistic issues, and all of this, larger contextual issues. And if, if I were jumping to different passages that I wish you know, to give you, because I think you need it, rather than going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, I'm in danger. Because if I'm jumping to different texts every week, I also have to do all of that study about the context and the historical and the linguistic. But when you take a book like First Timothy, you can do all of that up front, or most of it up front. And it applies to the rest of your text. Do you notice that as I go along here? I remind you every week where Paul is, right? He's in jail. It's part of the historical context. We need to know that. The sense of urgency that Paul has, knowing that he's about to lose his head. And, and with that mind, he studies. He studies to show himself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And so when he stands in the pulpit or wherever he's preaching, he stands to announce with confidence, thus saith the Lord. And he does so understanding full well what the Old Testament said about people who said they were speaking for God and weren't speaking for God. Amen. Thus saith the Lord. And we say that not in a flippant or careless way, but in a manner that's backed up by clear explanation and clear thinking that any person who is following along in the text and, 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 um, and listening carefully will understand, and they'll get it, and they'll say, oh, I see that. We, we, we understand that Paul is arguing, and he's arguing logically, and he's teaching us things that we didn't know or reminding us of things that we did know. And so he preaches in a manner that's backed up by clear explanation that any thinking person can follow in the text of Scripture as the message is preached. And the question then is, the only question is, how does the man of God handle the word of truth? And yes, there is the question of what is his life like, because you can undermine the whole message by the way you live. But Paul's concern here, he knows Timothy. He knows Timothy. He wouldn't have invited Timothy to be his right-hand man if he didn't have the kind of character in life that he needed. But Paul is limiting this to this narrow question. How does he handle the word of truth? Not is he clever enough, not is he culturally relevant enough, but rather, how does he handle the truth? Paul says he must rightly handle the word of truth. The King James says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And while a few minutes ago I said the King James doesn't communicate well on the previous word, study, it communicates, communicates perfectly on this word. Rightly dividing the word of truth. This is a good translation. The word behind rightly dividing is ortho to mayo. You already know what ortho means, although you may not think you know what it means. If you visit the orthodontist, he will straighten your teeth. If you go to the orthopedist, 
His job is to straighten, as it were, your bones. What Paul is telling Timothy is, you need, oh, and, and the, 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 the suffix here, tomeo, means to cut. To cut straight is what he's saying. Rightly dividing means you're cutting it straight. You already know, you already know that this is what God wants the preacher to do. Um, every week we study the word so that we can understand the word, so that every week we're standing, standing before God's people and we're cutting the word straight. It, it, the, the idea here is uh, they would use it, the ancients would use it in, for uh, describing how they would cut a road, for example, through an untamed land, or how a, a, a mason would cut stone. Think of the temple. Uh, it, it's really astounding when you think of Old Testament temple building, when they built Solomon's temple. You remember how they did it? They had a quarry, a good distance away. They cut the rock out of the quarry, and then every stone was cut off-site to fit perfectly in its place when they brought it on site. You're cutting it straight. It, it was used in plowing a straight furrow, which is not as easy as it may sound, or cutting a piece of cloth according to a pattern. Paul was a tent maker. You, you take the pattern, you lay your cloth down on it, and you gotta cut it straight because it's gotta fit with the next piece. If it doesn't fit, you gotta throw it away. You can't just stand up and say, hey, this is what I think. And it doesn't fit with anything in the word of God. It's just what you think. It's spiritual principles. Paul's saying, no, no, no. If you're getting it right, you're cutting it straight. It's going to fit. It's going to fit. It fits with everything else. It fits with the gospel. It fits with all the doctrines of the Bible. It doesn't contradict any of them. It fits. Whatever metaphor the writer may have had in mind, directness or correctness is really the basic concern here. Study hard, work hard, be zealous in your pursuit of understanding the scriptures and cut it straight, get it right. And we often say to our interns here as, they're, as we give them opportunity to study and to teach, uh, they will sometimes bring a message that is uh, from a text that doesn't quite match the point of the text. And I have a little speech I give, and it's called the This is What We Do speech. What do we do? We get the point of the text right. And if it's right, it will fit with everything else the author is saying. The faithful minister of the Word of God, whose concern is to build the church that will endure, labors in the word with the ambition of cutting it straight, getting it to the point, getting the point of the text right, explaining it clearly and practically. And this brings us to the third concern of the pastor who wants to build a church that endures. He not only confronts spiritual troublemakers and labors in the ministry of the word, thirdly, he shuns poisonous wrangling. You can tell Paul, Paul's really concerned about this, and, and there's... This isn't the only place he talked. All through the pastoral epistles, he's talking about this. Look at verses 16 through 18. Again, we'll confine this largely to what Paul says here. 16 through 18. I'll show you some cross-references in a minute. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people 
into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Um, Before we dive into what Paul has just said here, I want you to notice Paul's emphasis again on words. First, he told Timothy to warn certain brothers about engaging in the war of words. And now he's concerned about the danger of irreverent words. But in between these two themes, he charges Timothy to be a faithful minister of the word. Paul was brilliant. Paul was not just a brilliant theologian. He was a brilliant writer. Even though under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you find wordplay in Paul a lot. And this is what he's doing. Not those words, these words. These words, not those words. Bad words, good words. Bad words. He's emphasizing, Timothy, focus on what's true. Focus on what's right. Study the word and don't allow yourself or anyone else to get caught up in irreverent babblings. You see, beloved, as far as God is concerned, words matter. Words have an impact Words have power. They have influence. They influence people for good or for ill. They either draw people to Christ or lead them away from Christ. And perhaps that's why Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 said, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every what? Careless word. Every careless word. It matters what we say. It matters what we say. But when you consider that we seek the kindness, we see the kindness of God in this. It is grace to the church of Ephesus that Paul is bringing this to Timothy's attention and telling Timothy to warn these men about their, their angry words and about their irreverent words. For someday they will give an account of every careless word, like we used to say to our children before we disciplined them. This is grace to you. God didn't allow you to continue in your sin. He's being gracious to you. And so when Timothy confronts these men, it's going to be a hard conversation, but it will be grace to them if they're willing to receive it. And by the way, just as kind of an impact point here, when someone comes to you to talk about something they see in your life, is your first impulse, that can't possibly be true. I mean, look, I mean, this is me. And uh, maybe that's why you ought to think, it's prob- he's probably right. I need, to, I need to step into this conversation thinking, what if he's right? Maybe he's right. Maybe this criticism is true. Oh God, help me not miss the benefit of this trial. Even if, even if, Four-fifths of what he says is wrong. Help me to walk away with the one-fifth that needs correction in my life. In verse 16, Paul describes these words as irreverent babble. What is Timothy supposed to do with such verbiage? In a word, he's to avoid. He's to avoid these words. It's another uh, imperative, an active imperative from Paul. Avoid them. There are things you're supposed to pursue like being faithful in your labor over the word, and there are things you're supposed to avoid. 
And throughout this passage, Paul uses several active imperatives. The first is when he commands Timothy to remind and charge certain people about their words. Second, verse 15, Paul commands Timothy to do your best in the labor of the word. Again, another active imperative. And now in verse 16, Paul commands him to avoid poisonous words. The word for irreverent babble is used in other places in the New Testament and especially in the pastoral epistles. And it is a reference to the kind of chatter in the church that is hostile to the truth. In the church or out of the church. It's a kind of chatter that's hostile to the truth. In 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul calls this kind of speech, listen to this, this description, he calls it the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's an indictment. Let me just show you a few cross-references here because Paul was really animated about this issue, and, and, and these are, here's just four, and there's probably three times that many in the pastorals. 1 Timothy 1, 4 speaks of people's fixation on myths and genealogies. They would take these genealogies, and they would take an obscure word um, or an obscure phrase, and they would build it into this big thing, kind of like the, the prayer of Jabez. You remember that? It became just, you know, every, every unbeliever was wearing the prayer of Jabez bracelet. I mean, it was a multi-million dollar seller, and uh, it was all about this special prayer that you could pray, and God would bless you. And it was coming from a man that so many of us trusted for many, many years. And uh, someone else wrote a book in response to that one, and the title of it was From the Perspective of the Real Jabez, and the title of the book was all I really wanted was a little more land. <laughs> that was what his prayer was about. But people took those words and twisted them and made them become something that took over the church for a period of years, too many years. When 1 Timothy 4.3 speaks of those who wrongly find cause in the Bible or philosophy to forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain kinds of food. In Titus 1.14, people were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. And these are just a few of the examples that Paul was dealing with in his day, and he called it all irreverent babble. I think irreverent because you're taking the word of God and making it say something it was never intended to say. That's not reverence. That's not approaching the word of God with reverence. That's irreverent babble. I often hear and, and read people who will make a point that may or may not be true, and they paste a scripture on it that has nothing to do with what they're saying. And I often ask the question, why not use Shakespeare? Why use the Bible? And the answer to that is, if I use the Bible, it will feel and sound authoritative. I mean, this is the authority, right? But it, it's so far off what they were saying, so out of context, so contrary to uh, sound doctrine that um, you just wish they had used Shakespeare as a reference point and not the word of God. Why was he so concerned about these things among believers? Well, several reasons. Number one, because it leads to progressive ungodliness. Look at verse 16. 
but avoid irreverent battle, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. You know what that means? It means they will make progress in their ungodliness. They will become more and more and more ungodly. That these guys who live for word wars and cause dissension, they're good at it, and they'll get better at it until the whole church has been affected by it. This kind of discussion and arguments don't lead people into a deeper love of Christ or obedience to his word or dependent, humble prayer. Rather, they lead to further ungodliness. Secondly, it matters because it threatens the health of the church. Look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. You know what the word for gangrene is in the Greek? Gangrena. <laughs> I didn't have to go to seminary for that one. Gangrena, it, it, it's the equivalent of cancer. It is literally that which eats away. Um, it's like a malignant cancer that kills whatever life it touches. When this kind of talk is permitted in the church, it's just a matter of time before the whole body becomes sick. And by the way, that's true not only of myths and genealogies, but also about, it's also true about complaining, backbiting, gossip, slander, any habitual discontent that you verbalize. Um, they're rotten words that cause the body to become sick if they're not addressed properly. So why is Paul concerned, number three? because its leaders tend to abandon the gospel. The people who, who are kind of leading the charge in these things, who come up with these crazy ideas or these, these thoughts, they lead people to abandon the gospel. You think of all the things that have been published in the name of Scripture, like the prayer of Jabez. Did it cause people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus? Or did it just use the word of God to feed their greed? There, there is no magic bullet forgetting what you want. Here's how you do it. You just let your flesh go wild. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not how we live. You don't need a Bible verse to tell you how to get what you want. You just follow your desires. And this isn't theoretical for Paul either, this abandoning the gospel like this. He's actually talking about men in, in, in the case of two examples, men that he and I presume the readers already knew. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll say, you remember uh, Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, you know, back in the 80s. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He said, listen, uh, remember Hymenaeus and Philetus, how they abandoned the faith. How what was on the outside wasn't what was really on the inside. And then there is one more reason why Paul is concerned about irreverent battle, babble. It's because its followers lose confidence in Christ. Its followers, not just its proponents, but its followers lose confidence in Christ. It's, it's not just concern for the leaders who might fall away, but for those who are following and watching who, who may lose their confidence in Christ because of what has been said. They are upsetting the faith of some 
And so if the pastor is going to build a church that endures, he must confront the spiritual troublemakers. He must labor in the ministry of the word. He must shun poisonous wranglings. And lastly, he must ultimately rest on the foundation of God. So it's hard work, hard work, hard work, hard work. And then God in his grace provides a place of rest. Of rest. Look at verse 19. I love this. I've been pushing hard to get to verse 19. <laughs> verse 19. But that is in contrast. In contrast to the hard work that I've or ordered you to do relative to confronting these men who were saying these things and disrupting the church. And Timothy, I know it's hard. I live it. Brother, I live it. Every day, I live it. But let me tell you, it's not all hard work. There is a place of rest that you can find any day, any moment of any day. There is a place of rest. The Lord knows. Here's, here's, here it is, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. How is that rest? Well, the church is a little bit like that sand palace that I told you about at the beginning of this message. I've described that, that house, that beautiful house that got beaten and battered and when the storm was done, everything else was gone, but there it stands, beautiful, right where they left it, unshaken, the church was designed by Christ to withstand the fiercest storms and the crushing assaults of the wicked. And Jesus promised that it would stand. He, it will endure because he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, that is even death, Hades is death, even death will not overpower, kill the Christians and the church will grow. So when there seems to be little fruit and, and the enemies of the cross seem strong, at the same time you're feeling oh so weak, here's what you do. You climb on that great foundation stone, the promise of God to build his church. God has it all under control. And those of you who are, will be planting our next church, you're going to need this. In ancient times, whenever a foundation stone was laid, the master builder would come along and carve an inscription into the stone. A variety of things he might say, but in this case, Paul is picking up on that, and he says, God has carved into the stone two inscriptions. And here's number one. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who is, are his by the way, context here, remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago about election? We're still in that context. Verse 10, remember verse 10, he says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Listen, no matter what happens in this life, God has chosen a host of people to vast number who will come to Jesus no matter how fierce the storm the Father has already given them to the Son, and they are His. 
And we get the privilege of taking the gospel, this glorious message of redemption and justification and adoption, all of it really just being one packaged up gift of salvation for all who would believe. We get the privilege of taking those words, that message by which God creates faith in their hearts in order that they might receive the grace that God offers. It is by grace you are saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God. And so the first inscription is, the Lord knows those who are his. <laughs> uh, Pastor, that's not, your, that's not your calling to know, to try to save everyone. You, you can't save anybody. You can't give salvation to anyone. You can't make them take it. And you don't know if they really get it until you see it in their life. And that's the second thing. The second inscription is this. The first is, the Lord knows those who are his. And number two, let everyone who names the, the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, isn't that interesting? When we were looking at this hymn in verses 11 through 13, this is the exact conclusion we came to. When Paul said, we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And I argued that Paul was lifting that first phrase out of Romans chapter 6, where he's talking about how you are free from the domination and the sovereignty of sin over your life. You have been set free. This is who you are now as a believer, as a as, as one who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the number one mark of a true believer is his holiness. He's growing in holiness. And so, here are the two inscriptions. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We talked about the doctrine of perseverance last week, or a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember now. Was it last week? I'm always a, a, a study ahead of myself, and I get confused. Um, but, I, but it looks like the doctrine of perseverance in the text, and then you dig in a little bit and you realize it's really the perseverance of your sanctification, your growth in Christ. It's believe and keep believing, repent and keep repenting. And so what kind of rest do we enjoy when we stand upon Christ's promise to the church? It is this, God knows Whose are his. And we know who are his by the holiness we see within them. And certainly we know who are his fallibly. And because of this, I mean, when, it's, it's, a, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, hop up here on the foundation. Just, just go ahead and lay down on it. And think about these two things. The Lord knows whose are, whose are his. None of them will be lost. And number two, take a look around you. Look at all of these people that God has brought to Christ by his glory. And on those days when you feel like, I mean, why do we keep doing this? It just seems like there's no fruit. People don't want to hear this message. It's always been that way. The ministry of the word has always been that way. But take a look around at the people who show up Sunday after Sunday and they're in your small group, and you hear their testimony, you hear their story, and you realize every one of them has been rescued 
Every one of them has a rescue story. How God stepped into their life and how God is now conforming them to the image of your son. And know this, we're coming up on Easter, right? 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. He gets to the end of that whole long, long, long chapter on resurrection. And he says, then remember this, therefore, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When I, as your primary preaching pastor, get discouraged in the ministry, Paul says to me, climb up here on the foundation that is immovable and look around you at what God has done and get back to work because there's another sermon to preach, another person to counsel, another enemy of the cross who needs to be confronted, another wayward brother who needs to be rescued from the fire. Get back to work. Your rest is coming, and your rest has come in Christ. As Christians are called to persevere, so churches are called to faithfully endure. And when you study the scripture, you discover Paul shows us how. May we be found faithful. Lord, thank you for these words. We don't want to be like those who get caught up in wrangling about irreverent philosophical thoughts that we pay scripture verses on. We want to know your truth as you have revealed it. We want to know your message as you wrote it and intended for us to understand it. So help us, Father. I pray for the elders of this church that you would help us to be all the more diligent in our ministry of the word, our study of the word to resolve practical problems. No, Father, I pray that we would be men of the book, and by being men of the book, we will be men of Christ, knowing that one day we will give a stricter account of what we taught and how we led. No, Father, I pray that that would be the true for every person who is in any position of authority, whether it's the institution of their job or in the civil uh, workings of our community or whether it's in their home or in the church that we would exercise our authority in a manner that is consistent with your word so that Christ would be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.